Thailand 2017 was a mission and prayer consultation sponsored by ICOM in partnership with MB Mission. The plenary talk you are about to hear was one of nine, provided from four different continents. Our hope is that we continue to learn with one another in the global Mennonite Brethren family. I am very eager and excited and hopeful for what God wants to do in and through and with us uh, this week. At the same time, tonight I just felt like I have a burden to work on as well. And so there is something that's uh, tugging in my heart, really both ways. And uh, it feels like, I feel perhaps like Jeremiah, who said, I have a fire burning in my bones and I gotta say it. So I hope you won't be all mad at me at the end of it when I'm done. Uh, it's actually not my responsibility, I think. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable to God in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Mennonite Brethren family began in the Ukraine, in Ukraine, which uh, used to be a part of Russia. So Mennonite, old Mennonites used to say Russia. Mennonites had settled there in the late 1700s. But they say that the light of the gospel had gone out in many folks. Through the evangelistic efforts of ministers from Germany, a Holy Spirit revival entered the region. And in 1860, 18 families got together and said, we're going to start something new. And they were called the Mennonite Brethren. We who are gathered here in Thailand now are their spiritual descendants, if you will. We're Mennonite, we're renewal-oriented, and we're mission-minded. Less than 30 years later, the MB Church, can I say MB means not Muslim Brotherhood, but Mennonite Brethren? <laughs> Sorry. The MB Church sent Abraham and Maria Friesen to leave Ukraine for Nalgonda, India, near Hyderabad. They planted the first church in 1889, less than 30 years later. Now that church and that work has grown into the largest Mennonite Brethren group in India, some 200,000 members. Meanwhile, Mennonite Brethren who had migrated to the United States commissioned Heinrich and Sarah Voth to go north to Canada to evangelize people who were settling in the mid middle of the country. And the first MB congregation in Canada was organized in 1888, the year before Nalgonda, India. It grew into the Canadian Conference of Mennonite Brethren Churches with 35,000 members. So from our beginning, we heard God's call to mission, and we gathered here are their descendants. They're, we're missionary descendants. These just brief historical notes help to identify who we are and why we're here. This works better. 
We face many challenges, major challenges here in this world today. And ICOM is a family trying to figure out how to make those challenges, how to meet those challenges. Some of us, some 21 churches, are members representing 3,000 congregations, about 450,000 members. Those are the members of ICOM. And yet, we have another 15 to 20 groups that are emerging, emerging networks, emerging churches, emerging church planters, visionary people who are gathered here in this group. This is the front edge, the leading edge of where God is taking us in mission. We are a small denomination, yet we have a community history, a theological identity, and a mission. And Thailand 2017 is set up to ask this question. After 130 years of mission activity, where is God leading us now? Can we catch a vision of that? Well, the book of Ephesians is our central text. And in it, we see the church, a description of what it is and why it exists. Why are we on mission? What is our character supposed to be like? And for this moment, I hope to tie the words of our theme together, the church on mission through prayer, through prayer. This is a mission and prayer consultation. So my text was already read from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. The first thing I want to say is that mission begins with God, and we talk about God as a triune God. I love the songs we sang. We're praising God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's who we get our identity from. And the first uh, chapter of Ephesians outlines the great plan of God for the world and the church. This plan is founded on the Trinity. It says that we learn from the beginning its creation, in creation, and the calling of the people of Israel. Paul said, it's my prayer that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and knowledge of him. Verse 17. The Trinity is right there. Right there. And it has everything to do with the creation of the church. Uh, Ray Harms Weeb is uh, an important guy in our uh, mission history. And he wrote about uh, this for us. It, we ground our identity and mission in the community of the Trinity. He said, engagement in the missionary task must be grounded in relationship with the same Father who sent Jesus to earth and the same Holy Spirit who empowered Jesus. I love the testimonies we heard tonight. How does the Holy Spirit help a guy argue for two hours? He doesn't hardly even perhaps know that the Holy Spirit is guiding him and doing this until later. This happens to us all the time. I'd like to add the voice of an indigenous North American named Richard Twiss, a guy that I've been reading recently who I am, is contributing to my burden, actually. 
Richard Twist is an American indigenous theologian, and he actually passed away in 2015. All he says is this, the line I'd like to highlight, Trinitarian theology points to the radical communal nature of God. And when we are on mission, what we're doing is we're, communi uh, we're communicating the radical communal nature of God. More than ideas, more than just convictions, more than just doctrines, we are conveying, look at that bottom line, uh, God's overflowing, superabundant life of communion. When we invite Jesus, uh, we, we talk to people, we invite them into a living communal relationship with Jesus, right? Amen? So, the essential community of the Trinity is the hallmark of our theology. That's the very beginning of the Icom Confession. We confess that the church, as a community, in fact, is a way of interpreting the scriptures. We call it a community hermeneutic. The thing is, it's easy for us to talk about the Trinity like we know it. And history shows it's been actually a really, really hard thing to get to. Israel, it took them hundreds of years to come up with monotheism. Just the fact that there's one God who is above all and incomparable to all other gods. It took them hundreds of years to come up with that. Just when they figured out monotheism, Jesus showed up. And threw all those categories out the window. And then it took the church, the early church, 300 years to figure out the Trinity. That's when they got the doctrine settled down. And then the Reformation took place, and Martin Luther actually hated the idea of the Trinity. And Anabaptists didn't see it directly in the Scripture, and so some of them even had trouble with the idea. You know, that just tells us it's impossible to know God. It's impossible to know God. But you have to know him in order to know that. It's impossible to know God, but you got to know him before <laughs> so that you can know that. And how we do know how do we know that? We actually know it through the gospel, Jesus Christ. It, that's the key. That's why we share the gospel. Jesus is the I am revealed. God is so different. He is so other. He is so completely other, a different category than anything we know. And we have to somehow grasp that in our hearts, discover it in our spirits. It's not an idea. It's a terrible idea. The Trinity is a terrible idea. But it is a wonderful discovery when it hits your heart. So we learn to know God through Jesus. All this tells me is the difficulty of knowing God should make us pretty humble as sharers of the gospel, as missioners. It should make us a little bit more humble. Um, actually, Ray Harms Weeb confesses that we have had a trouble with this as Mennonite brethren. Uh, let me quote him. 
the incarnation of the Son of God, his loving identification with humanity, and his self-giving sacrifice. Should be up there. Yeah. Because uh, it's a long quote. Uh, his loving identification with humanity, his self-giving sacrifice, are the model, model for the missionary church. From a confessional sp- perspective, mission is also the mission of the Father and of the Holy Spirit. But Mennonite brethren have had difficulty articulating the Father's active engagement and have been even more guarded, trusting and facilitating the loving work of the Holy Spirit. That's, that's just our confession. That's Ray Harn's weed uh, reflecting on who we are. You know, the I am cannot be captured just by ideas. The I am is a voice that can only be heard through humility. The I am must be discovered. And here's where the problem lies. When we think we know God and we've got him in our back pocket, then we think we have power. We think we can do whatever we want. We think that he blesses our culture as the one, the supreme. Uh, And I'm going to quote Richard Twist again, the American Indian theologian. And here's a guy who knows what it's like to be on the receiving end as a people of a church that thought they had power and knew what they were doing. He just laments the fact that his ancestors actually had visions of missionaries coming to them to North America. They were already monotheist, actually. They believed in creator. They just needed to get it straightened out. But unfortunately, the church joined the government in North America to wipe out the American indigenous people. And the suffering among North American indigenous is a testimony to a mission effort charged with pride and power. And this is a problem. You know, Richard Twist kind of in a funny way says, it took him years to realize that 2 Corinthians 5 didn't say, uh, old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become white. So if we don't get God deeply embedded into our souls, we run the risk of assuming God is baptizing every one of our ideas, particularly when it comes to power. Amen. (laughs) Have we evaluated this? Have we looked at it? And I think that, well, it's it's a question that is of a burden to me. As I look at an international church trying to figure out where it's going now, an international mission from everywhere to everywhere, what does that look like? Where are our assumptions of power? Well, I will say more. The Trinity. We derive our sense of mission from the Trinity, our identity from the Trinity. Second thing I want to say, the church the church, that's what's on mission. 
the church is on mission. We know that the church is the body of Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22. You know, the, uh, John chapter 1, 14 is charged with very unique meaning. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. It doesn't say the word became a document. The word did not become a download. The word became a person, flesh. The incarnation shows us the way God is revealed and how truth is revealed. Jesus, having incorporated all the believers into his body, basically tells us that we are God's incarnation in the current form. Current form. Listen to Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. It just gives us a glimpse. And he, God the Father, put all things under his feet, God the Son, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We are Christ's body. And somehow, mysteriously, we fulfill God's presence in the world. This is an unbelievable thing to realize. The church is something so completely different and other than we think. It's just like we need to get this new vision of God in our minds. We need to get this new vision of the church in our hearts too. The church is the way God is revealed in the world. Who else is there? Who else is there? Who else? There's nobody. It's the church. It's the body of Christ. The church expresses the truth of God contextualized in relationship. This is why we work on our relationships. This is why we work on ethics. This is why we resolve conflict. The church shares the life that Christ gives to us to a world dying of sin. I believe this truth must be discovered as a felt reality. And it is something I've meditated on for a long time. I have felt like it's taken me years to get it from here down into my heart. Missed. It's years. It's meditating on the right thing. I have, told, I have felt that the church has been such a mess that I've walked away. When my own home church was in conflict, my wife and I agreed for one year we couldn't talk about my home church, our home church, because we would just get mad every time. We'd get mad. So finally we settled ourselves down, and we still keep going to my, our home church. But it took patience and the belief that Jesus' church is his body. Amen. See you doing that. All right, brothers and sisters. The problem that we're facing uh, in many parts of the world is that as we've been smothered by forces like uh, modernism or individualism or some of these new scenarios that we are facing in our culture, they have made us think badly of the church. And we are afraid to really champion the church, and we forget who we really are.
The church is the divine community. That's a phrase I've picked up from uh, just some of my readings. We are his body. We are the community of God in the world. Do we believe that? Do you believe that tonight? We are the divine community? We really sink into our hearts because if we do, this pushes us to ethics. It pushes us to discipleship, to following Jesus, to confessing sin, to keeping short accounts between brother and sister. If we're the divine community, if we are the representation of God who fills all in all, it, it just is a different level of motivation. So I've been meditating on Ephesians, Philippians 2, Colossians. I'm allowing the writings of many church leaders throughout the years to penetrate my heart. This is the discipline I've been going through to teach myself how deeply important the church is. All right. So the church is what salvation looks like. The church is what salvation looks like. Look around. Look around. Can I just hear an amen? <laughs> I mean, just look at us. This is unbelievable. And like I said before, when we were singing, and I couldn't tell what language we were singing, that was something I could hear. It's amazing. Right? Just a taste, just a little taste. That the church is what salvation looks like. We believe this, brothers and sisters, as Mennonite brethren. In our confession of faith, the, uh, uh, one of the uh, points from the uh, ICOM International Confession of Faith is that we are a people of a new way of life. The church, we believe, is where people are discipled, where people are renewed. That is what happens in the church. Individualist Christians focus on a vertical relationship. And some of my conversations with a friend I have always talked about, you know, my sister. I can't stand her, and she can't stand me, and we fight all the time. But, you know, I'm in right standing with God, and he'll deal with her at some point in her life. <laughs> it's like, wow. Um, sometimes the individualist idea is we just fix our vertical relationship. But as Mennonite brethren, we have always said we do the vertical relationship and the horizontal. This is really important. People of a new way of life. Uh, Cesar Garcia is here in the congregation, and he I'm going to quote him. Uh, he observed uh, in a writing, uh, Mennonite brethren are tempted to define the church by function, either limiting the announcement to announcing good news or working for service and social change. But Anabaptists have always conceived of the church in terms of the kingdom. The church proclaims the kingdom and... The church is the kingdom. Amen. Was that you, Cesar, that said amen? <laughs> I don't know what to do with my papers anymore. Our confession also says that we are people of a covenant community. Covenant community. We covenant with each other. 
to be members of one another and help each other in the walk of Christian life. And so Anabaptists have always said, we discern the voice of God within the church, even as many other Christians emphasize individualized interpretation or rely perhaps on media specialists for real discipleship. But we have always said, in the church, we learn to disciple one another. All right. So that puts the church at the center of mission. If the church is the fullness of God in bodily form, that locates mission within the church. Mission exists in the church. I've had a great conversation with Randy Friesen about this because what I'm going to say to you is approved by him. <laughs> Brother. So I said, mission is located in the church, not the mission agency. And I'm not throwing MB Mission under the bus by doing that. MB Mission has always seen itself as a function of, an expression of, an extension of, the, in this case, the Mennonite Brethren Church, uh, originally from North America. But now we're seeing uh, an MB Mission popping up everywhere. Brazil is working on a sending agency. India has a sending agency. They have a missionary in Myanmar right now. Uh, right, so uh, Colombia, Jose Prada. We have mission agencies that are not just North America based, but all over. But still, we're saying that the function of mission is not the mission agency, it is a function of the church. That is why you go and evangelize people, bring them into a local church, start an association, and move into building a national church or a regional church or a culture-specific church. That's the end result. That's the cycle. So I had to say that because we've got to believe it. Uh, I think in our individualized societies, some, of, some places rely only exclusively or talk only exclusively of an individual starting an independent agency, going out and doing some amazing things, but are they attached to a church? Sometimes they're not. Sometimes they are. Finally then, well, second finally, our mission then needs to have a global character. Global character. Just bump a couple of uh, slides over. Bump, bump. Yeah, next. That's it. First of all, the character of mission is about communion. So that means the, the whole idea about mission is tied up in the word love. The character of mission is communion because that's about God. It comes from the radical communion of the Trinity. God so loved the world. And the church loves God and the church loves the world. And so we go into the world like God did. Second, in this day and age, our mission needs an everywhere-to-everywhere everywhere gospel. An everywhere-to-everywhere everywhere gospel. We're going to hear a lot of great presentations this week. And one of the final ones on Saturday morning, uh, Randy Friesen's got uh, his, his uh, talk is titled An Everywhere-to-Everywhere everywhere Mission, right? So you're going to see it. We're going to hear it.
But we need a biblical gospel. Here's my, here's my burden tonight. I, I feel, as a North American, hemmed in by a particular kind of gospel that's been promoted strongly in North America. And it works in North America. It works in guilt-based cultures that essentially the problem of sin is a legal one, is a legal one. We're trying to satisfy a problem of the law with God. It's valid. But Stephen Freeman, an, Ox, an Orthodox writer who actually came out of the Southern Baptists, says this, the problem of sin is not at its core a legal problem. The real problem of sin is that it kills us. And the thing is, we've got to figure out how to deal with death because death occurs in North America, in South America, in Africa, Asia, and Europe, and even Antarctica. So a gospel that teaches guilt and legal satisfaction of God is suited to the West, but I don't think it's an everywhere-to-everywhere -everywhere gospel by itself. What about the majority of the world population that are community-oriented, collectivistically based? We have a workshop, actually, with that, Robert and Ann Thiessen, where honor and shame are the main cultural drivers. We have to proclaim the gospel of the exalted Christ who gives honor. Elsewhere, people are trapped in fear of the unseen realms and powers. The gospel of the victorious Christ must also impact power-based cultures with a power encounter. It's a whole three-dimensional gospel. Uh, to me, that's a big challenge. Do we have an everywhere-to-everywhere -everywhere gospel? And I think we have the capacity to do that because we have an everywhere-to-everywhere -everywhere congregation here. But to actually have that happen... I have to name what I might call the elephant in the room. There's still a lot of white people in this group, and we have a very real problem you might call white power. And so I believe our mission needs to be shaped by a new humility and a new kind of unity. So here's just a glimpse of what I'm talking about. And I, I don't even know if I'm going to get this right, but it's been bugging me for a very long time, and I think the Lord has told me, I've got to talk to you about this. So I'm, that's what I'm doing. I'm trying to be obedient. but I think the white Western church has a problem with power, and let me just lift a little bit of information I got from a, a lovely conversation by a fellow named Rothney Tsaka from South Africa. He says, black theology first developed as an attempt to validate blacks as human. As black theology emerged, Western ways of thinking ruled that there's no way to include African ways of thinking and of producing knowledge. 
He said it's taken a long time for those in power to finally validate the voices from a receiving culture. Thankfully, he says, the issue of whiteness is now on the table. That's why I feel maybe a bit freer to talk about this. People are admitting whiteness is a factor in theological discussions. Today, actually, I've done some reading on this, lots of people are addressing this topic. So the problem of whiteness or white power is on the table. So let's talk about it. But then, while this is good, we're just peeling off a few layers. Tsaka observes, when African theologians offer a critique or an idea that's challenging, the white pattern is first to say, uh, be quiet, don't assert yourself, learn your place and stay there. Let those in power speak and think on behalf of those without power. When the indigenous theologian insists on speaking, let's say, but I have a point. Then a white pattern is to withdraw and say, oh, we don't like this conflict. It's not really good for us to have conflict. Let's settle things down and the folks with the power pull away from the conversation. And that maintains the gulf between white power and the indigenous. Uh, Richard Twists, again, we must genuinely appreciate all cultures as being capable of reflecting biblical faith. Genuinely appreciate all cultures as capable of reflecting individual faith. Now, folks, I don't want to say this because I think we're failing on this count. I actually don't. Except that I'm a white guy. How do I know? How do I know? I don't know that for sure. I just know that in ICOM, we've worked pretty hard to try to make sure that we don't walk away from a conflicting point or that we do listen. But frankly, folks, this week is a phenomenal opportunity. And I think I'm going to have to say, I'm going to speak to people of my color to just be patient, to engage, to listen, and be listening for God in our spirits. Everybody here in this room has something to offer. Everybody, everybody. So I need to say this to us. And I need to say this to everybody in the room. Let's be encouraged to walk into this as much as we can. Because God will use us anew, more powerfully, and his spirit will be released. If you feel like you don't have a voice, and yet the spirit says, speak, please do. And if the your spirit, in, or if you're inside, you're being impatient, and you think you have the power to walk away, slow down. Let the spirit speak. Let's learn with one another. Let's learn from one another. Let's open up the pathways. Amen? I don't want to put a guilt trip on us. I want to put hope into us, right? But I'm trying to name something. So that, 
Our mission is shaped by a new humility and a new kind of unity. Well, all my pages are sticking together. Uh, it's a good thing I got them numbered, though. Uh, maybe just let me leave an image with you. I think mission crazily comes most effectively in weakness. I know this is so counterintuitive, but when I look at the images of Jesus Christ in Revelation, you see the fiery, amazing image of chapter 1, and he's got burning eyes, and everything is just huge, and John wants to fall down. And then in chapter 5, is it? You see the slain lamb, slain lamb. Which one, which one is authorized to open the seals of the end times? Which one? The slain lamb. Why? Because the slain lamb represents the suffering church. The suffering church. The church in weakness somehow opens up the doors for the Spirit to move and come into people. Actually, our Anabaptist heritage, back in the day, there were 60 leaders that went into a forest to figure out how they were going to reach all of Europe. And they did that. They mapped it out. And some of them started churches within hours, but most died a martyr's death. Uh, there's an incredible quote. They are daily beheading four or six or at times ten persons. And this is in a community, somebody's reflection of the horror of the day. Really, our mission is another other to God, the church on mission. Okay, finally, the church on mission is our prayer. Just a few comments on prayer. It's more about actually doing it than talking about it. But here it is. I used to think I need to improve my prayer life. I need to improve my prayer life. Have you ever asked or said that? Have you ever stated that? Man, I got to improve my prayer life. Until somebody said to me, your life is your prayer. Your life is your prayer. Revolutionized my whole approach to this. And then, of course... <laughs> What's my life look like? My life has to look like Jesus, right? So the way we do mission reflects the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus himself. The way showed us how the life of prayer prepares us for danger. The way stood with perfect calm before Pilate, before Herod, before the Sanhedrin. The way showed us how to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit to stay calm and grounded and well-resourced as a person. A spiritual warrior is tender-hearted and brave, self-aware and attuned to others. This is what Jesus showed us. This is what the way showed us. You know how Paul used to say, Christ in us? He says it so often. Listen, Christ in us teaches that it takes time to pray and fast and wait on God. 
Christ in us longs to pray. Christ in us longs to fast. Christ in us longs to reach the world with his love. That's why we're on mission. Last slide. Really, it's just a simple equation. But the flow of God coming into our community with a specific confession of faith, we're Mennonite brethren, so that's why I put that extra picture on there, moves us into the world. And folks, it's all about love. In the Trinity, it's just infinite love. In the community, he calls us to love one another. And what do we do? We love the world like God loved the world. How did he love the world? He went. Jesus said, as the Father sent me, so send I you. Folks, I am so excited and hopeful about our event here this week. It's unprecedented. It's historic. We haven't done anything like this before. And we haven't been in a position quite like this before either. Let's live in love. And when we really love one another, I think that white power business will get dissipated. I hope so. I hope so. That's the burden. Uh, let's pray. For, thank you, dear Lord, for this awesome opportunity, this great occasion. Uh, thank you for feeding us with the truth of us, the church, being the very body of Christ, your presence in the world. And help us, uh, let it motivate us. I pray, Lord, that it would motivate us to be all we can be and on mission, in prayer, for your sake. We appreciate you. We love you. And we love one another, Lord, in your name. In Jesus' name, amen. That was one of nine plenary talks presented at Thailand 2017. We hope you will experience the love and blessing of God through ICOM.